It just isn't fair. Oh, Biggs is right. I'm never going to get out of here. Is there anything I might do to help? Oh, not unless you can alter time, speed up the harvest, or teleport me off this rock. I don't think so, sir. I'm only a droid and not very knowledgeable about such things. Not on this planet, anyway. As a matter of fact, I'm not even sure which planet I'm on. Well, if there's a bright center to the universe, you're on the planet that it's farthest from. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels close like a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. For a restless farm boy aching for a life of adventure, Tatooine was a dead-end planet. Destiny was calling, and he knew his future lay somewhere out there among the stars. But for the Skywalker saga, Tatooine is the cradle of the mythology, the place where it all began, more than once. And as the saga came to a conclusion, it was the place that saw its end, more than once. Hi, this is Mark, host of Forever Star Wars. I had so much fun creating the Galactic Travels episode that I envisioned it as an ongoing series within the podcast. I skipped Tatooine initially because I thought it was an obvious choice as a destination, and I wanted to do something unexpected. You can check out that episode and see what planets I featured. It's episode 10. But when I was ready to revisit the Galactic Travels series... I couldn't put it off any longer. Tatooine is, undeniably, the best catalog planet in all of Star Wars. We've seen more of its geography and culture than any planet in the entire franchise. For a planet that's farthest from the bright center of the galaxy, it sure sees its share of action. For this travelogue, we'll explore some of the best-known locations of the desert world study the races that call it home, and feature landmarks that play a pivotal role in the Star Wars saga that spans three generations. Sound like fun? Well then, all aboard. But from where should we embark on this tour of the planet? Why not start where the films do, in the vast nothingness between settlements? Tatooine's deserts broil under the punishment of twin suns. It's no place for living things not adapted to its environment, and not much more hospitable to droids. The scenes of R2 and 3PO bumbling around in the desert are slow and plodding. It's an odd choice for a movie that opens with a space battle, and an established roll call of good and bad characters that we meet and instantly we know who they represent, the black and white morality of good and evil. Vader in black stands in stark contrast to Leia dressed in white within the white walls of her freedom-fighting space vessel. But the story takes a hard left turn and follows a pair of bickering robots as they stagger out of their escape pod and into Tatooine's endless and unforgiving maw. How did we get into this mess? I really don't know how. The colors are now earth tones. What seems like infinite nothingness soon reveals a planet that is alive with possibility. 
That malfunctioning little twerp. This is all his fault. He tricked me into going this way, but he'll do no better. As a kid, I was captivated by the dragon skeleton that 3PO walks by in these scenes. Right away, it's clear that Tatooine may be all desert, but it's far from deserted. It has details both in and out of the frame that suggest a dense and complex universe unfolding before our eyes. The original Star Wars spends the next several minutes exploring even more of Tatooine's terrain as 3PO and R2 part ways. Each have their own run-ins with the desert's most ubiquitous and persistent menace, Jawa Scavengers. Jawas were a sentient race of scavengers, native to Tatooine, but who also populated other worlds in the Outer Rim. Jawas were mostly short in stature, although some members of the species could grow as tall as two meters. Their robed attire concealed their appearance and made them quite mysterious. Although rumors persisted, they were rodent-like in appearance. Their hooded garments concealed all discernible features, save for one, glowing eyes. The Jawa culture was centered in scavenging and trade. They combed the deserts of Tatooine, looking for flotsam and refuse, rarely discerning whether the material was free for the taking or not. If they came upon a ship abandoned, even temporarily, they considered it fair game. Din Jaren learned that the hard way on Arbala 7. My ship has been destroyed. I'm trapped here. Stripped, not destroyed. The Jawas steal. They don't destroy. Driven and resourceful, these minions of the desert commandeered abandoned ore mining vehicles called sand crawlers to use as roving scrap markets and salvaging trawlers. Jawas were fond of loitering around the most Espa pod racing course to recycle the wreckage of unfortunate racers. Although nomadic, the Jawas would often choose one location to set up giant smelting tents to act as a base of operations while they scoured the surrounding terrain for junk and parts. The most profitable area of trade for the Jawas was in droid trafficking. With such a high abundance of artificial intelligence in the galaxy, stray droids were always a possibility and presented the Jawas with an irresistible opportunity to seize and reprogram or repair them for sale on the local market. Poor R2 was one of these droids when he wandered into a trap set by the Jawas and was incapacitated by Dothja, leader of the area's local trade clan. Although Jawas were an integral part of trade in the remote settlements of Tatooine, moisture farmers were leery of their goods since Jawas had a reputation for trying to pawn bad and faulty droids. Uncle Owen! Yeah? This R2 unit has a bad motivator, look! Hey, what are you trying to push on us? Hey, you can't blame a Jawa for trying. Tatooine farmers had a much more serious problem to contend with besides grifting, unscrupulous Jawas. The desert's other sentient nomadic race had a reputation for being xenophobic and violent towards anyone encroaching on their territory. Random attacks by raiding parties, kidnappings and torture and shifting boundaries of their perceived territory 
made Tuscans a terrifying menace to the settlers of Tatooine, who didn't regard them as much as people as they considered them monsters. From the tracks, she was about halfway home when they took her. Those Tuscans walk like men, but they're vicious, mindless monsters. But as is often the case, the hostilities between Tuscans and farmers was more likely the result of an inability or an unwillingness to communicate. Moisture farmers were attacked so frequently because Tuscans believed all water on Tatooine was sacred and divinely promised to them as the indigenous people of the planet. Bounty hunter Din Djarin sought passage through their lands while on a bounty hunt and demonstrated a remarkable aptitude for communication with the reclusive Tuscans. What are you doing? Negotiating. Using sign language, he negotiated passage in exchange for a pair of binoculars. He didn't view or treat the Tuscans as monsters, and the Tuscans responded in kind. That was not the case with Anakin Skywalker, however, who hunted down the Tuscans after they kidnapped and tortured his mother. But even this kind of inhumane violence by the Tuscans was not mindless. Raids on settlements were often part of a coming-of-age ritual for young Tuscan warriors, and prisoners of these raids were subjected to torture as yet another ritualistic test. That was a little comfort to Anakin Skywalker when he found his mother clinging to life inside a Tuscan encampment. Stay with me, Mom. Everything... Anakin's retribution became a legend among the Tuscans. No! A story about a demon from the desert that slaughtered women and children. Tuscans were known for being highly superstitious about their surroundings. They regarded Mushroom Mesa as cursed. It was a region of stone pinnacles that was part of the Bunta Eve Classic Pod Race course. And on the edge of the Tuscan hunting grounds in the Junland Wastes, Tuscan hunting parties would fire their blasters before passing under the natural stone formation known as the Bithasachi Bridge. The name Bithasachi literally means Bantha Horn Become Stone. Not every spiritual belief, however, revolved around fear or superstition. The Tuscans had a deep, intimate spiritual bond with their Bantha mounts. Tuscan culture was so interwoven between the two species that Banthas and riders were often pair-bonded for life. If a Tuscan died, its Bantha soon followed out of grief. When a Bantha passed away, it was given the same burial rites and sacred observance as any member of the tribe. Sentient life can only exist in a small, habitable region of Tatooine's northern hemisphere, so human settlers eked out a living in the harshest conditions and resigned themselves to a life of danger and adversity. But they persisted 
and developed a modest culture on the edges of the desert wastelands. Moisture farming was the only viable industry in this unforgiving place. The Lars homestead, where Luke grew up with his Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen, was a typical dwelling in the Great Chot Salt Flat community, which included Anchorhead and Luke's favorite hangout spot, Tashi Station. The homestead was a series of underground passages and dwellings, shielded from the baking twin suns. The Lars farm was situated at the edge of an ancient dried seabed. There was nothing but flat desolation as far as the eye could see in any given direction, but this proved to be a tactical advantage since raiding parties and criminal gangs were detected by motion sensors long before they reached the settlement. Each colonist to Tatooine was drawn to the promise of mineral wealth. The harsh environment soon forced these early settlers to find more reasonable means of surviving, while developing more modest means of trade. Moisture farmers who didn't own farms large enough to sell water on the open market used their moisture evaporators to supply water to their dwellings and also to supply life to hydroponics gardens for which they would harvest and sell food. Such was the case for the Lars homestead. Luke, tell your uncle if he gets a translator, be sure it speaks Bachi. Doesn't look like we have much of a choice, but I'll remind him. Orphaned at birth, Luke Skywalker grew up in this simple, mundane life, unaware of the significance of his lineage or where he was destined to go in life. But he spent hours daydreaming in his youth of leaving Tatooine and exploring the galaxy and having adventures in faraway, exciting worlds. The homestead contained a large garage where he tinkered on vehicles, both utilitarian and recreational. These included his Sora Sub X-34 Landspeeder and his damaged T-16 Skyhopper, parked in the garage with damaged S-foils. What Luke could not have known was that his uneventful life was the direct result of someone watching out for him and his family. The raids and robberies that plagued so many human settlers living in the Tatooine wilderness did not affect the Lars and Luke. There was a crazy old hermit out there somewhere making sure they were safe. As meager and dull as Luke's daily existence may have been, he was fortunate that he never grew up in Tatooine's nefarious slave trade like his father Anakin. On the other side of the habitable region was the port city of Mos Espa. Inhabited by poor settlements and crime gangs, it was a dangerous place for outsiders to find themselves lost. The maze-like streets were packed with dusty merchant shops, kiosks, salvaged traders, and more wealthy trading houses. The authorities ignored all but the most serious crimes, making Mos Espa a likely place for visitors to find themselves robbed of valuables, or their ships stripped for parts, if not left under guard. Slave trade was illegal in the Republic, and also in the Outer Rim, but that didn't stop wealthy locals like the Huts from engaging in it anyway. So Anakin Skywalker grew up living in servitude and poverty, like his mother Shmi. But even by slave standards, their life was better than most, having been won in a bet by a Toydarian named Watto. Their former master, Gardula the Hut, forced them to live in a hovel with six other slaves. Watto, at least, gave them a hovel of their own. Not out of generosity, of course, but necessity. He simply couldn't afford any more slaves. But it was here that Anakin was raised under the warm and empathetic guidance 
of Shmi Skywalker. In spite of her life of servitude, Shmi still wanted Anakin to know the value of helping others. Mom, you say the biggest problem in this universe is nobody helps each other. The Skywalker hovel was tiny and sparsely decorated. The hovels themselves were built by mining guilds that came to Tatooine generations ago. The same companies that left behind the sand crawlers reclaimed by the Jawas. The hovels had originally been constructed as cheap labor housing. They were little more than adobe pits, with doors often too small for the average humanoid to fit through without ducking. The compact interior provided ample protection from the heat of the day, warmth during the freezing nights, and shelter against merciless sandstorms. The dwelling was powered by a waste recycling generator. It took animal and municipal waste from the surrounding buildings and converted it to power. The generator inside Shmi's hovel powered at least four of the adjacent hovels as well. It was a crude and unflattering power source, but it worked. Access to Watto's workshop granted Shmi and Anakin supplies and scrap for various uses within their home. Anakin took it upon himself to salvage a broken protocol droid, and he began to work on its reprogramming so it could help his mother around the house. Anakin's bedroom was full of trinkets and gadgets, pilfered from the junk stores of Watto's business. He was more than happy to show off his work to Padme Amidala during her visit to the home. Oh, hello, I am C-3PO, human cyborg relations. How might I serve you? He's perfect. Oh. Speaking of Watto, his shop in downtown Mos Espa was a chaotic treasure trove of rubbish, both rare and mundane. Some of it was acquired through legitimate trade, but most of it was collected on the black market or from nefarious sources such as Jawas who owed Watto gambling debts. His overhead costs were low because he utilized cheap and free labor from slaves like Anakin and Shmi, and the assortment of droids that Anakin helped assemble for his use. You could find just about any part you needed at Watto's shop, at inflated prices of course, and if you were smart, you didn't question where the parts came from. The architecture of the shop housed Watto's relaxation nest in the upper dome. Inside the peak of the dome hung a clan bell of Toydarian nobility. Watto wasn't from a noble family. He just purchased it to feel more important. Along the walls of the nest hung an assortment of pod racing trophies and collectibles. Pod racing was the paramount sport in Mos Espa, feeding the local economy and gambling rings managed by the Hut Crime Syndicate. Watto was quite the fan, sporting prized possessions donated from famous pod racers and their pit crews, or purchased stolen memorabilia from the black market. Watto even managed to get into the races himself when he found that young Anakin had talents for both mechanics and piloting. Anakin was the first human to ever race pods and live to tell about it. He had remarkable skill and superhuman intuition that gave him an advantage that most humans lacked. And never failing to exploit talent when he saw it, Watto placed Anakin in the local races against Shmi's wishes. But slaves were not granted an opinion on such matters. Do you really think we're going to find a pilot here that'll take us to Alderaan? Uh, most of the best freighter pilots that will be found here only watch a step. This place can be a little rough. I'm ready for anything. Yeah. 
In another region of Tatooine, Chalman's Cantina in the rough and seedy spaceport of Mos Eisley was where Obi-Wan brought Luke to commandeer a pilot to take them to Alderaan. Any number of pilots frequented the notorious establishment, but only a pilot whose discretion could be reliably purchased would secure the bounty for this mission. Chalman, the owner of the bar, was an ex-street-fighting Wookiee who made a small fortune on Ord Mantel by cheating tourists out of their credits. He then set his business sights on purchasing the most icely watering hole from a pair of spice-dealing brothers. The Cantina building had originally been built as a stronghold against Tuscan raids, but over the years it served many other purposes, including a flophouse for vagrants and a spice den. Chalman turned the building into a brewery and an entertainment spot which attracted all manner of fugitives, criminals, bounty hunters, and star pilots seeking contracts. Inscribed in basic on the arch above the entrance to the bar was the phrase, Watch Your Heads, which probably had more than one meaning. The Cantina Band, a group of Bith musicians called Figrin Dan and the Modal Nodes, had a residency there, playing their jaunty tunes to a raucous and often intoxicated audience. The air was thick with smoke and clan scents of various races. Lively conversations bounced off the clay walls. Some of these conversations were within detection of listening devices placed strategically all around the bar. Chalman's security officer had a listening station positioned on the other side of the wall and would eavesdrop on conversations between smugglers or crime syndicate associates so that Chalman had an upper hand in the black market trade network. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. The bartender was a gruff human named Wooer, who had a strict no-droids policy in the bar. He lost his parents to battle droids in the Clone Wars, and his hatred for synthetic life compelled him to install a droid detection unit at the entrance of the cantina to scan for artificial intelligence. Cantina patrons included all manner of visitors to Mos Eisley, but some of the regulars included Ithorians, Abyssins, Deveronians, Aqualishes, and yes, of course, Jawas. The main bar and entertainment section may have been jumping, but the real action took place in the labyrinthian back rooms and subterranean tunnels where fugitives paid hefty prices to stow away in hiding. Illegal goods were traded there, and rare and dangerous elixirs were brewed. Venture far enough into the back rooms, and you could find an escape craft parked in a garage nook. Chalman kept the craft fueled up and on standby for any quick escape needed. The barkeep Wooer prided himself in having the most exclusive selection of rare and specialized concoctions found anywhere in the Outer Rim. His subterranean brewing alcove contained a system of pipes that fed the main bar tap with a variety of liquids, gases, and solid-based ingredients. This alcove was like his laboratory, but Wooer reserved the most exclusive creations for the wealthiest patrons. This included Jabba the Hutt, the preeminent crime lord on Tatooine. Jabba didn't frequent the cantina, but would send his minions to pick up goods or trade, and Wooer's special hut concoction of mummery, bergamot, and skusks was one of Jabba's favorite brews. Speaking of the huts, once Jabba was killed by Luke Skywalker and friends during an execution ceremony, the crime and smuggling industries of Mos Eisley and Mos Espa largely dried up. The spaceports didn't see as much traffic, and in waning years, the cantina struggled to stay in business. Wooer was eventually gone, and in his place, droids tending the bar. The power and influence of the huts on Tatooine could not be overstated. 
They were the overlords and stewards of the desert planet, and at the height of their reign, Tatooine was home to one of the most ruthless and depraved gangsters. Jabba's palace on Tatooine was as grand and terrible as his reputation. Of course I'm worried, and you should be too. Lando Calrissian and poor Chewbacca never return from this awful place. Don't be so sure. If I told you half the things I've heard about this Jabba the Hutt, you'd probably short-circuit. Situated below the northern Dune Sea, Jabba's palace rested on a ridge above the Great Mesra Plateau. The distinctive circular shape, punctuated by a single large tower, could be seen for kilometers. Less informed travelers might have assumed that Jabba built the palace as a kind of monument to himself. It's shaped a lot like a hut. But the structure's history goes back much further than Jabba. Jabba's not the original residence of the landmark. He's just the current owner. The temple was built by Bomar monks, members of a mysterious cult that believed that enlightenment was achieved by eliminating all physical sensation and focusing on the mind. To this end, the order performed rituals to remove the brains of the most exalted monks so the monks could ponder the galaxy without the distraction of corporeal husks. The brains were placed inside large oval flasks and suspended in a nutrient-rich fluid. When the disembodied monk wished to move around, the flask was picked up and carried by a multi-legged droid in the shape of a spider. Jabba invaded the monastery and made it his base of operations and home. He allowed the monks to remain on property and wander around in meditations. He was especially delighted by the sight of the spider droids carrying their clutch of monk brains. The macabre display amused Jabba. The monks were more than happy to allow Jabba free reign in their abode. Not that they had a choice, mind you. Being so distantly removed from terrestrial concerns of morality and lawlessness, the remaining order ignored the seedier elements of Jabba's entourage because the monks were only interested in achieving ever higher states of existence. A closer study of the palace structure revealed reinforcements Jabba added in the form of thicker walls and short foundations. The central cupola was reinforced with titanium and reflective shielding so it could repel aerial attacks. Several sentry and security towers surrounded the outer boundary of the palace. Some of the towers were used to detect approaching sandstorms or raiding parties. The massive nine-story tower was topped by a communications dome containing hyperwave sensors that recorded the transmissions and movements of criminal syndicates throughout the outer rim and beyond. Inside the central rotunda was the Grand Arena, once used by the Order for religious and meditative rituals. Upper levels of the rotunda contained the Bomar ceremonial concourse, adorned by hundreds of hanging prayer flags. The halls were once filled with artwork, tapestries, and frescoes, but they had long since been pillaged by the palace's criminal appropriators. Below the ridge on which the palace sat, there was a garbage dump where useless droids and sometimes useless servants were discarded. This pit of junk was a favorite salvage destination for, you guessed it, local Jawas. Extended far below the main foundation of the palace was a massive hangar which housed Jabba's distinctive sail barge and an assortment of skiffs. The sail barge was Jabba's most cherished pleasure craft, 
stocked with the finest elixirs and his preferred mode of transportation to attend the execution of his enemies at the Pit of Karkoon. When it came to residing within the interior of the palace, Jabba preferred the cool, damp subterranean chambers far below the desert surface. These areas were ripe with mold, decaying biomatter, humidity, and filth. It reminded Jabba of his homeworld of Nalhada. It was in these lower chambers that Jabba held court in his throne room, the most notorious hovel of debauchery in all the galaxy. Accessible by a grand staircase, the throne room was heavy with the smell of roasting gerba on a spit. Behind the walls was hidden the pipes of a Bomar organ that was once used in sacred ceremonial performances. The pipes were now silent witness to the echoes of depravity that emanated from the chamber. Jabba's court was filled with thieves, criminal initiates, bounty hunters, and sycophants such as the Twi'lek Bib Fortuna who kept the throne room stocked with vessels of tasty Klatooine patty frogs and vivacious slave girls who were subjected to Jabba's rancid affections. It was truly a house of horrors. <laughs> Sitting at the right hand of the throne, so to speak, was the Kowakian monkey lizard Salacious Crumb. The noxious creature had a shrill laugh that punctuated the din of the chamber. Jabba permitted Salacious to luxuriate as long as he could make the crime lord laugh at least once a day. So Salacious took to his job as court jester with great enthusiasm, for it was his only means of survival. Entertainers, courtesans, and court jesters performed for Jabba's amusement, but none held a candle to the resident house band of Max Rebo. The band performed here and at his private residence in Mos Eisley. The band's core trio consisted of Max, Droopy McCool, and singer Cy Snoodles. The band's supplemental complements were made up of various drummers, backing vocalists, and stand-in musicians. Below the throne room lay the labyrinth that few were brave enough to venture into. It contained the boiler room where the droid assessment office was housed. This was where droids were assigned their place in the court. The operations were managed by EV-909, the sadistic droid overseer. Fit him with a restraining bullet. Nearby, the dungeons were where Jabba's enemies and disloyal subjects awaited torture or slow, neglectful death. If they were fortunate, the prisoners were awarded with a quick but terrifying death by Rancor. The reptilian carnivorous Rancor, native to the planet Dathomir, stood five meters tall. It was a prisoner, no doubt, but it was a cherished pet. Jabba kept the beast for his more shocking displays of cruelty and fickle justice. The pit was once rumored to be a Bomar Grotto. Now it reeked of putrefaction and gastric juices and was littered with the regurgitated remains of the Rancor's victims. The Rancor was kept by a beast wrangler named Malakili, previously of the Circus Horrificus. Through a regimen of pain and torture, Malakili kept the Rancor subdued and trained to only attack the unfortunate souls that found themselves dropped into the pit. In spite of his policy of tough love, Malakili was extremely fond of the Rancor, thinking of it as his adopted child. The Rancor, however, did not flourish under this type of love. The living chamber contained deep grooves where the Rancor clawed at its prison walls in agony. 
Tatooine is where it all started. It gave us our first look at the world living inside George Lucas's imagination. He populated it with wonders and with dangers that would thrill children for generations. The name Tatooine is practically a household word today. There are a lot of desert planets in Star Wars, some would say too many, but they're all measured against the standard which is the first. There is so much to explore in this twin sun baked rock at the edge of the galaxy's rim. Banthas, Eopis, Tuscans, Jawas, Podracers, Spaceports. The world building of Star Wars has given us a staggeringly large assortment of minutiae to sift through. We only took a brief tour this time. If Star Wars continues to return to Tatooine for stories in the coming years and decades, we may have much more to explore in the future. Thank you for joining me on this excursion. If you have places you want me to explore in depth like this episode, drop me a line at clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com. You can do the same on Twitter at DJMMarquee. And if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can find me at MMarquee1205. Star Wars is having a bit of a rest right now, but The Mandalorian Season 2 is cranking up, so I'm sure there will be lots to discuss and explore in the remaining weeks of 2020. After the kind of year we've all had, it'll be a nice reward for sure. Visit us at ClashingSabers.net for articles of insight and analysis on all things Star Wars. And until next time, wear your masks, stay socially distanced, and I'll see you soon. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember, Your focus determines your reality.